welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. I'm uh, feeling pretty good today. Got up at 3 a.m., got a ton of crap done, and uh, it's been a full day for most people's standards, but what's cool about getting up that early is I cracked a bottle of wine about noon, and I'm loving it. So uh, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, and it's a Thursday. And I'm a day away from heading back up to Canada for a awesome tournament. Weekend two of tournaments for me. It's been a while since I shot 3Ds. But uh, had two awesome shoots that were for great causes that I really wanted to support. And uh, last week's was an awesome shoot I'll talk about in a minute. But this week's uh, coming up here June 4th and 5th up in Red Deer, Alberta, Canada is the Red Deer Valley shoot. And this is going to be an awesome tournament. If you're a Canadian listening to this podcast right now, there's still time to register. Make sure you do. You can register at reddeervalleyshoot at gmail.com or call Wolverine Guns and Tackle uh, again, June 4th and 5th. If you're late listening to this podcast, you probably already missed it, but there's going to be 12,000 in prizes alone given away. This is huge, <clears throat> big event, and the proceeds of the tournament are going to be going to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which is why I've elected to go up there and help do my part and give back to this sport. Um, last weekend shoot, and actually, let me talk a little bit more about this weekend shoot. So what's cool about this shoot, they actually brought me in, and we planned this about seven months ago, but um, I've just always loved the format of having a marked distance with orange dots. Um, I know Levi recently did that as well for the OPA. Um, This shoot is going to be the same. Uh, Definitely uh, friendly for any level archer, and you know, also it'll kind of level the playing field some all the targets are going to be a marked distance with uh the center 11 rings painted orange which is going to be awesome kind of a redding style shoot it's going to be super cool but again the proceeds are going to be going uh to the make a wish foundation and i guess i need to throw a shout out um it's going to be powered by under armor and and hoyt archery a uh, big part of helping make this thing roll. So super excited to be part of that. Now, last weekend, I was up there pretty much in the same exact area for the fifth annual Oilman's Shootout. And this is an awesome, awesome event that um, my good buddy Shane Jensen puts on. Um, it actually, the proceeds of that event go to, I forget the technical name for it but um also a charity event uh some of the proceeds go towards clean water project in africa but also each year um he elects to give half the proceeds to a selected um 
charity last year. It was to a real needy family um, that had a um, a bit of a crisis that they needed financial help with. So I know the community was really supportive to help that family out. Now this year, um, half of the proceeds, I believe, are going to be going to uh, Fort McMurray and you know the devastation of that fire up there. Uh, but as for the tournament, it was an awesome event. Close to 500 archers all up there. Um, I, I decided instead of shooting the full range that I would actually spend my time on one range. And that way as um, the, I guess there was five or six different shooting lines or shooting times that went through that one particular range. There's three ranges that all the archers shoot. I stayed in one spot. That way I could get to shoot a few targets with almost all the archers. Um, I missed a few here and there. Some of the ranges went a little bit faster than others, but all in all, it was really, really awesome. I went up with, uh, I was shooting my Hyper Edge at about 63 pounds shooting an AC Pro Field Arrow. Uh, wasn't the traditional 3D setup. I kind of had my normal target slash field setup. Um, I was shooting a Sherlock sight with a 35 millimeter lens with a 0.5 diopter. So at my draw length, it was probably about a three to four power. Um, shot a red, or no, I shot a green fiber optic up pin for this 3d shoot and it was awesome um several of the target well all the targets on that course at one point i shot for the first time and shot really really strong there was one target and i posted this on my instagram account i purposely hasn't haven't uh, given the answer on the instagram account to the question that i posted simply because i wanted to talk about it on the podcast but um, a few days ago, I posted a picture on my Instagram account, and I think even on one of my Facebook pages, just saying how far to the wolf target, and kind of pointed a little red arrow there to that wolf target. Um, this kind of factors into a subject that I do want to talk about on this podcast of judging yardage a little bit, um, but... You know, there's several different ways to judge targets, and one of the ways the more advanced you get as a 3D archer is simply looking at the target and your, you know, your mind, your subconscious almost determines that distance based off the size of a known object. You know, you can tell by how small it looks or how big it looks a distance. Also, for me, I judge a lot, um, or at least if I'm kind of in between what I should guess for yardage, I base um, the distance on how well I can see the rings um, or particular details in the target. And the Mackenzie Wolf target was a target that was always one of my favorites because I had always wanted to shoot a wolf in real life. So I just, for me, that target was one of the funnest for me to practice on and I always loved having the wolf target when I shot 3D. Now this one, when I stepped up, and keep in mind I hadn't shot 3D at least in a year, maybe two, um, at least in this environment. When I stepped up, 
it was dark timber, big trees leading all the way down the lane, just classic 3D scenario. And my hat's off to the to Shane and the boys for setting up this range because I was actually shooting with a really good archer up there uh, named Cody Draper. And when I stepped up, my mind just looked at the size of this target and just instantly it popped in of that target's 45 yards. I mean, I had I had seen that target so many times at ASA tournaments at a max distance of 45 yards that it just like clicked. Just the size of it was just that is a max distance and just right away I was just certain that it was 45 yards. Um I was so confident that I was going to shoot the center out of that 11. I actually gave my phone uh, to Cody and said, uh, film this. I'm going to smoke this thing. And I literally set my sight, drew back, and the target's on a very hard quartering angle. And it's also in front of a very large uh, evergreen tree. And... I shot and absolutely smoked that thing right in the back of the skull and pinned that thing right to the right to the tree. It was uh I couldn't believe it. My face is pretty priceless when I turned to the camera because he's like, Did you nail it? And I turned to the camera and just said, right in the back of the head. I was probably 12, 14 inches high. Um I grabbed my rangefinder out of my quiver and ranged it because I had to know, and it was just under 32 yards. I had misjudged that thing so bad, and I couldn't believe it. And when I walked up there, it was actually the McKenzie Coyote target painted perfectly to match the wolf target. So it was just a total rookie mistake of just assuming that the target was the target according to how it was painted. Um, I didn't, I should have spent time and paid more attention to what the actual target was, but because it was facing away and quartering really hard, I just couldn't look at the front of the face of the target to know that it was a coyote and not the actual wolf. It just totally looked like the wolf. It was small in my mind's eye, and I never, I never looked at the ground as a secondary reference to yardage. Which it's always good if you're judging to, you know, go off your instinct, but also to try to find confirmation. Look for those small details. Also, if I would have looked at the fact that there was a huge amount of holes right in the back of the head, I probably would have known that a lot of people were shooting that target high and I could have taken my time a little bit more and, and made a good shot but I'll um I'll go ahead and post that video of my shot and then also my shot reaction for um, all of you listen I'll put it up on the knock on archery YouTube page um, and I'll just name it um, I don't know I'll name it something, but it'll be the newest post. But it, somehow or another, it's going to be related to uh, John Dudley shoots like an idiot on a wolf target. Uh, but, hey, that's all part of the 3D game. That's what makes it interesting. And stepping away from it, you forget about some of those minor 
details like that when it comes to being effective for judging yardage. You know, all the top archers out there have a different means of doing it. Um, I've I've always liked to find my 10-yard increments simply because I've always recognized 10-yard increments because of my days on a football field. Um, but I normally go off my first instinct of getting a ballpark. Like, for example, on a lot of the targets I stepped up and it just clicked right away of that was, you know, that's 28 yards. And actually, um, <clears throat> on my first on my first six targets, I think I shot <clears throat> 11, or I'm sorry, I shot five 11s on my first six targets. And what I found was on those first targets, even though I had been away from 3D for a long amount of time, just looking at those distances and going with that initial guess, I was doing really, really solid. Then as I started to shoot more and more through the course, I almost started to spend more time <clears throat> looking at the distance and trying to judge the distance rather than go with a natural instinct of what that distance was. And I started to make a few more mistakes um, here and there with my yardage the more I tried to complicate it, so to speak. But as a rule of thumb, I know there's a lot of you right now heading down to the ASA in Kentucky. Um, good luck to all you guys and gals that are heading down there. Hope you have a great weekend. Um, but, you know, you have to go with what you what you have as a gut feeling first and then try to confirm that. You know, for me, there's really a couple ways to do it. Either I use the 10-yard increments because that works well for me, or I like to really try to find that halfway mark and and determine what's halfway and then judge the distance to that halfway. And, you know, if I would have done that with this wolf target, I can guarantee you that I would have really had a hard time coming up with that 45-yard number if I would have thought, okay, I'm going to second, I'm just going to confirm this by finding my halfway point, which in this picture, uh, the halfway point is from, from what I can see is actually a stake, um, that's up there for the youth. And it's really only about 10 yards or 11 yards in front of where my target was and knowing that most of the youth shots are 20 to 25 yards I would have easily said well that's that's not going to be right because if that stake is only 10 yards away I'm I'm kind of coming up with 10 yards difference here I need to to look at this better so go with your gut but also try to try to confirm it with something but also keep in mind, like I said, there's a fine line there if you're a 3D archer trying to really get fine-tuned at judging unknown distance. If you start to spend too much time at it, you're going to complicate things and you're, gonna, you're really going to undo your mind's ability to judge distance based off depth. 
And you'll be surprised at how good you are um, if you're practicing and looking at a few targets. Like I said, for me, those first six targets, I literally stepped up and um, they were ranging anywhere from, I think the first six targets I shot, they ranged anywhere from uh, 29 yards to 38 yards. And like I said, I shot five out of six 11s and that was shooting a really small diameter shaft, which kind of brings me into the topic of, I know so many 3D shooters were out there just focused on using gear that is conventional to 3D, uh, big arrows, lighter points, um, and I don't know. I had this discussion with a lot of people on the range. I just know that my highest scores I've ever shot on field archery, known distance or unknown distances, is with an arrow that has the best ballistic values, has the least wind resistance, has a good overall weight, a high front of center, so it has a decent uh, point weight in the front, and it has minimal drift. And, you know, when there's times where the wind starts to pick up a little bit, you're really not having to, to second guess how much you need to aim on or aim off. Um, the other thing, too, is I really like to shoot with my sight much closer to my bow than a lot of people right now. You know, I've had this discussion recently with a friend of mine, and, you know, there's there's a lot of people right now shooting, um, especially hunters, um, that are shooting the spot hog sites and I'm just not a fan of how far people are putting those sites out in front of their bow because the further out you put your sight in front of your bow one when it comes to like torque tuning um, you know you're really not able to get your arrow rest far enough back to offset any variance that you're having in your front hand position so when you're holding your bow and you're at full draw, if you have any front hand torque and you're twisting your bow a little bit, the further that sight is out away from you, the more it's going to magnify that torque. And, you know, torque tuning is something that you do where you actually move your rest um, or your sight forward or back to where when you do have a slight amount of torque, you're the torque and where it turns your front sight it'll actually offset where that arrow impacts because of the distance that your rest is behind where you're holding the bow so in other words if your rest is behind your hand and your sight is in front of your hand when you slightly torque the bow but then counteract it by moving your pin you know what you think is in the center of the target but you're actually technically holding a slightly off target because you're you're torquing the riser um if the rest is in a perfect position in relation to the the center line of the bow and then the sight is in a perfect position in in relation to the center uh part of the bow they kind of counteract one another and what you'll find is there is a position where your sight is forward of the bow and your rest is behind the bow at a certain distance that allows you to have a slight twist in your handle without having a major difference in impact at the targets. And I can tell you that for me, 
and I think if you look at a lot of the archers out there that are that excel in technical courses like field courses, you'll find that they're not shooting their sights way out in front of your bow. The other thing too is the further out you get your sight in front of the bow, the more it will open your pin gaps. Your pin gaps will be bigger the further out that is. Now it does allow you to fine tune. Like for example, if you have your sight way extended out, you can easily see the difference between 39 yards and 40 yards. So you can set your sight at 39 and a half. Or if you're shooting out to 100 yards, you know, two or three clicks isn't making as big of a deal um, as compared to when the bow is closer to the riser. However, since your pin gap is slightly closer together when it is closer to your bow, I just feel like it gives me the ability to to have a little bit more variance in my range estimation and still be able to keep the arrows within the 10 um, and keep from dropping points on those 3D courses. And that's just my personal opinion. And when it comes to the arrows that I select... I just feel like if I'm shooting a small diameter shaft and I have it tuned well, I've got 30x 300 uh, rounds that I've shot with X10s or Pro Fields or Pro Tours, and those targets are way more impressive looking than a 30x that I've shot with a big diameter shaft. I just feel like my left to right misses... Um, are about the same either way, and I just don't see a huge benefit in having that small difference in shaft diameter. And this is an argument that's gone on and on for years, but I know for me, and I think even with like you look at what Jesse Broadwater shot, um, I think you look at a lot of the rounds that are shot in Redding, and you'll find that whatever arrow is truly grouping the best and giving the best performance and especially when it comes to there being light variable conditions um you know wind, tailwinds or crosswinds the ballistic advantage of that small diameter shaft will just reign supreme unless you know your equipment absolutely perfect enough to know the difference but in saying that if you're shooting 3d ranges that are only averaging you know 30 35 yards it isn't near as important as when you start to get into a range that's starting to push over 40 45 yards or even some longer shots that are pushing 50 we had about an hour there in canada where a storm kind of blew in it got pretty windy. Um, it was mostly protected, but there's a few areas where there was some gusts kind of flying through. And if you happen to be on one of the targets where you're shooting a 45 or 47 yard target, or even up on the very top of the hill, there was a 51 yard buffalo. It certainly would have had an effect on a a bigger diameter, lighter tipped arrow as compared to what I was shooting. And if I shot a 10, which I actually shot that course twice. One time I did shoot a 10, one time I shot an 11. Uh, I can tell you that if I was shooting a big diameter shaft, when that wind was really ripping, there was a very good chance 
that I would have shot an eight on that target. Or if I happen to have been even a few more targets down, um, for example, on a standing bear that there was at a, at a quite a good distance, I think 47 yards. With that kind of a wind, if I wouldn't have aimed off properly, I could have easily shot a five um, because on a standing bear, you know, the difference between an 11 and a five is pretty minimal. And at that point, if you do shoot a five because you're not judging the wind correctly, it's pretty easy to argue that that diameter difference wouldn't have picked you up five different lines for shooting a small diameter shaft. Certainly there was, I would guess there was two to three targets where a bigger diameter shaft would have got me the 11 ring. However, like I said, if I would have shot a five because I didn't know how to judge the wind properly with a big diameter shaft, I would have dropped five points instead of, you know, not getting the call on those three. So it's six of one, half dozen of the other. It's arguable. Um, but what I want to do here is I'm actually going to jump into a few questions that I've answered recently that kind of stuck out. Um, and I'm just going to read through these here. Uh, the first one is I currently shoot 30 inches and I've been thinking about shortening up to 29 and a half to have the string at the corner of my mouth like you talk about. My question is, do I go 29 inches with the D-loop or 29 and a half with the D-loop? I'm not ex- I'm not exactly sure how that stuff works. So when it comes to string fit, you know, that half inch, the half inch is fairly minimal. But the main thing is keeping your shoulder in the correct position and keeping your head in the correct position is going to help you determine that half inch. But when we talk about how the bow fits, it's different than the overall length of the bow. So you're saying here um, that you're shooting a 30 inch, but you're debating or that you want to go to 29 and a half. And you're saying, do you do 29 with a do loop um, or do you do 29 and a half with the D loop? So what you really want to do is the purpose of the D loop is to really change your anchor position according to where it fits forward or back on your face. And the ability to shorten or lengthen that D loop also is directly related to the string angle of your bow and how far that string actually needs to come back from the corner of your mouth in order to allow you to have your head still straight up and down and have that string on the tip of your nose. So for me, on a longer axle-to-axle bow, I may shoot a slightly shorter draw length. Like, for example, if I have a 40-inch bow with an 8-inch brace height, I'll probably shoot a 30 and 7 eighths draw. Whereas if I have a 34-inch axle-to-axle bow, I'm probably going to shoot a 31 and an eighth-inch draw according to the actual where the bow itself draws and stops. From there, my D-loop is going to be adjusted 
so that when I anchor and I have my hand flat and my knuckles wrapped around that release, where my knuckles are bending, if you look at a picture of me at full draw, those knuckles are going to be pretty much sitting between my ear and the back of my eye socket. So if you're shooting a bow that has a shorter axle-to-axle length and has a sharper string angle, you may need that draw length a little bit longer, but your D-loop is going to be shorter. So this question isn't going to be easily decided by do you just set it at 29 or do you set it at 29 and a half? You want to have your bow to where when your head is in a vertical position and you turn it towards the target, that string, I don't like it to come much further past the corner of your mouth, but if you have a very sharp string angle, you know, if you're a 30 and a half or 30 and one inch draw shooting a 31 inch axle axle bow, chances are that string will have to come a little bit past the corner of your mouth in order to touch the tip of your nose when your head is straight up and down. But you're going to have a slightly smaller D-loop on there because of the fact you don't want your hand sitting back by your ear. So the D-loop allows you to adjust where your anchor is sitting or and it also affects where your alignment is if you look at yourself from straight over the top, you know, from a bird's eye view. If your D-loop is a little bit longer, obviously that elbow is going to be further back. If the D-loop's too long with the proper string fit, then the elbow will start kind of pointing down when you're at full draw, and that's something that you don't want to have. Um, I can tell you that on some of my shorter axle-to-axle bows, my D-loops are a little bit longer. Um, about seven eighths of an inch, sometimes an inch. Whereas on some of my longer axle axle bows, the D loop will actually be shorter. So the main thing is have your head vertical, look straight towards the target and draw that back so that when you have a proper anchor position, of you know if you're holding a handheld release your index finger will be right under your jawline your middle finger will be right above the jawline and in that position if your knuckles are right between the eye socket and the ear you're going to have proper alignment and you'll have to adjust that d loop accordingly so that's really what you're going to have to focus on that question is I had to answer it the way that I did. And the reason I saved it for the podcast is because, you know, a lot of people, they may measure 29 inches if they just measure their draw, but that might not be the actual draw length that they need. So a bow fits them correctly. You know, recently, um, I've been working with, with Joe Rogan on his setup and, you know, he tried both a 31 inch model as well as a 34 inch model, not really knowing which of the two he would like. I really fit a 34 inch model perfectly. I can keep my head vertical. Um, a 31 inch draw 
comes right to the corner of my mouth if I have about a three-quarter inch D-loop. My anchor position is perfect. My elbow is still um, at the right height. My, 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 my forearm is parallel to the ground, and as I pull through and my shot fires, I'm not pulling my elbow down because I'm overextended. Now with Joe... He's got a shorter frame than mine, and he's really suited perfectly for that 31-inch model. And because he shot the 31-inch model and it was fit to him perfectly to begin with, the 34 seemed quite a bit different. And it's because that string angle is sharper, so technically you do need to shorten the actual length of the string some, and possibly bring that loop a little bit longer so that you can kind of have the same overall feel and fit. But that's what I, when people talk about what bows best for them, I really like to look at string angle and keeping your, the ability to keep your head in a vertical position, looking towards that target, having the string at the corner of your mouth, tip of your nose, being able to shoot about a three-quarter inch D-loop so that your anchor position is correct. I really like to think about that and it, the comfort of shooting way more so than trying to decide on a model for four or five feet per second difference in speed. You know, some people are, you know, up in the air whether or not they want to shoot the turbo model or a 34 model or whatever it is, they're worried about going to a 34 uh, just because it's one or two feet slower than a 31 inch model. But the difference is if they're an archer that's taller in statue like me, they're just going to fit the longer bow better and they're going to be more accurate because their posture is correct. So for me, speed at this point in archery is not near as relative um, relative and as important as what it used to be in years past. You know, when we're talking three or four or five feet per second, that's hardly a difference in scale. So I just really think people should focus more on being able to shoot with an erect posture and a perfect posture and string angle and also... Also, what's important about that string being at or slightly beyond the corner of the mouth and being at the very tip of the nose is you prevent that string from being, or the peep rather, being too far in front of your eye. You know, for me, when I shoot the shorter bows because my draw length is longer, that peep sight starts to get further away from my eye and it starts to get much more difficult to actually center the peep and the front sight the further that peep is away from your front eye. So that's why I kind of like to have that string right at the tip of my nose and then that peep kind of just barely beyond my nose so that it's much easier for me to center everything up. Okay, the next question here is uh, being relatively new to competitive five spot shooting, I ask more experienced shooters to to quantify their pin float. My question to you, Mr. Dud, 
is can you describe your pin float in reference to the X-ring of a five-spot target? Is your pin or dot in the X-ring 70% of your hold time, 90%? What is it? Um, I know it does depend some on dot size and pin size, but can you elaborate? So I would say once I actually go through my whole shot process and I'm pretty much settling my air, set you know my bow's level, my pins in that target, I would say I'm for sure within that that scoring ring that I'm going after 75% of the time. But what I found is the more I try to hold steady, usually the more difficult it gets to be. And a lot of times, the more you're trying to focus on holding steadier within that, a lot of times people start freezing outside of it more so than being solid inside of it. So, you know, I've talked about this in the past. I really think that how the bow moves and how the bow floats has a lot to do with what your brain is trying to do too. And I feel like if you're the type of person like me that likes to look at the object they're wanting to shoot, like for example, um, just thinking real quick here, a lot of times when I was shooting 3D, there was an arrow already right in the the X-ring or right in the 11. And when you're trying to hold exactly on that knock, I have, I feel like I have more movement and that I'm actually on that knock a little bit less when I'm really focusing on it than if that knock wasn't there and I was literally just looking past my pin and focusing on a specific area in the target. And I believe the reason that happens is because when you're telling yourself or you're telling your mind that you want to hit that exact little dot and then you're covering it with an object, I feel like your subconscious naturally moves your pin off of that object in order to see past it and confirm that it's still there. Had to take a wine sip. Um, for years, Jesse Broadwater shot a lens that was you know, completely frosted all the way around except for the very clear middle part where he could just look through the clear part of his lens and look at what he wanted to shoot. And he felt like he was much steadier and much more accurate that way. And this plays right into what I'm talking about. I personally have a theory that the subconscious does not like you covering something that you're telling it to hit. Because deep down, your mind knows that if you're going to hit something, your pin needs to be on it. So by covering it, you can't see it. And it's kind of this continual fight. Your mind wants to see it to confirm that it's there, yet it also knows that you have to hold on it in order for it to be there. So you're kind of off, you're on, you're off, you're on. 
And as long as you embrace that concept of allowing that pin to barely float enough so that you allow your subconscious to get confirmation that what it's trying to hit is still in the same spot, then I think a lot more arrows are going to come to the middle. Uh, when I was shooting with Joe, he actually had these um, cool little foam balls. We called them bozo noses that we would just push in the target right in the scoring ring. And those were really cool because I actually don't really like where a lot of the 3D target companies have the actual 12 ring. I think they're in a good spot according to being in the center of the core or center of a foam. But if I were to actually, if I'm in practicing for a hunting situation and I'm truly learning shot angle, I personally would probably be a little bit more forward and a little lower um, than where the 12s actually are on these targets. So what was cool about these little bozo noses that we could push into the target is we could actually put them on the actual golden triangle of where we would naturally shoot that target in a hunting situation and what I found was my pin would move around a lot more when we would put those bozo noses in and I was really trying to shoot the bozo nose now if that bozo nose was out and I still knew where this 12 ring was I could probably shoot more 12 rings simply by not having a very, very specific point to aim at because I was allowing my subconscious to let that pin float without trying to fight it as much. So there's kind of this constant battle. You've got to be able to embrace it. And this is also really important for combating target panic because I just feel like this more you try to be steady then the more negative things that are going to come of that you're going to have you're probably going to start adding more weight to your bow you're going to start compressing the front shoulder you're going to start probably freezing beneath the target because you're solid and you're able to still see the target that you want to your subconscious is looking at what you want to hit right above your pin and you're frozen dead solid um and that's all part of your mindset. If you're thinking that you have to be still and you also want to see what you're hitting, then you're literally building your mindset into being the type of person that freezes beneath the target and doesn't have any movement. Yet when they put their pin on the target, they have all kinds of movement and anxiety normally quickly follows. Uh, next question here is elaborate more on getting better groups long range and extending your distance. So this is a pretty complex subject. I probably could do a whole podcast just on this specifically. And, you know, the good thing, there's pros and cons to shooting at the extended distances. For me, I love shooting at a longer distance. I think it's funner, but it also magnifies my mistakes. If I'm not pulling through my shot and I'm coming away from my face or I'm coming down and peeking at the arrow, that mistake gets very big when you're talking shooting at 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 yards. And your mistakes really start to magnify. 
What's important is I really feel like if you're going to shoot good at a longer distance, make sure that you allow your target size to grow with the distance that you're shooting at. So, you know, if you're trying to shoot this really small target at a really long range, you're way more apt to develop an anxiety and target panic than if you have a bigger target. You know, I shoot a I shoot a big target face at my longer distances and even like at Joe's, I know he shoots a lot at 80 yards. He has a, a full size elk target to shoot. So he's not trying to shoot at this super small target for the distance that he's at. It's it's proportional to shooting a deer target at 40 yards. So you know, try to keep your target relative to what you're shooting. And from there, you really have to start taking notes on where you're most frequently missing. And I like to shoot fresh, fresh paper each day or most days, especially during a practice day, so that I can see where my misses are most common, because that tells me a lot about what I'm failing to do. You know, if you're sitting there, if you know your bow's sighted in and 50% of the time you're shooting a bullseye, but 50% of the time you're shooting under the bullseye, then that's an indication immediately that you're either coming out of your shot and you're coming down to watch that arrow fly, which, you know, that's a big mistake. You got to pull through, let that arrow soar to the target but pull through the shot and once it hits then look at where it's at but if you're trying to watch it fly before it even leaves the bow then a lot of times immediately start pulling shots low because you're dropping your bow arm to watch if you start to send a lot of you know and i'm talking for right-handed shooters you start to send a lot of arrows out to the left you know, it's an indication a lot of times that you're coming out away from the face instead of pulling through the shot. If you start to really battle with, you know, your your missed arrows are just constantly left and right, left and right. That's an indicator that either you're inconsistent in your front grip position or that your arrows aren't necessarily spine matched to the bow setup that you have. You know, there's a lot of different variables, but what I focus on doing is to get better at the longer ranges, you want to have flat ground, relatively flat ground. You want to shoot those longer distances on calm days or make sure that if you're shooting, you are at least positioned in an area that's relatively calm so that you can be steady and focus on executing good shots without having to feel pressured to rush the shot to go off. And from there, you know, there's just, there's a magnitude of things that your misses can show you. You know, some of the misses may be relative to equipment. And, you know, unfortunately I can't go through all the different variables relating to that. But seeing you know, one out of four or five shots go low, that's an indicator that either you're not centering your peep or you're, like I said, you're trying to watch that arrow and that hand's coming down instead of coming back and through and over the top of the shoulder, keeping that 
that release hand face or jaw height, but coming all the way back around that shoulder instead of dropping down. Also, like I said, not coming away from the face. Um, for left and right misses, obviously, you know, grip pressure, like I talked about, can have an effect on that. Facial pressure, you know, if you're really spraying arrows left and right more than anything, try drawing back till the bow stops and then bring that release hand over to the face and then touch the tip of your nose light to the string and just have very light facial pressure. The other thing too is if you're struggling with left and right groups and you're shooting a big heavy stabilizer or stabilizer with a ton of back weight, go ahead and move that or take some of that weight off and see how much it improves your left and right groups. You know, I just, I am not a fan of people shooting a ton of front and back weight on their stabilizers. I know that's the fad right now, but if I could tell you guys the amount of people that are just banging their heads against their wall for, you know, left and right misses and not being able to get proper tears through paper, and then you literally just take that rear stabilizer off or that front stabilizer off with all that weight, it just clears those random left and right um, misses right out. And also even sights, you know, a lot of people shoot a front sight that's just ungodly big and heavy and too far extended. And if you have any variance in your front hand position, that extra weight out there also has an impact too. So focus on those things, and I think that you're going to find it's really a great starting point for being able to extend your yardage and also become more aware of what you're doing in relation to your shooting form and your variance in shooting form. Uh, next question here is, what is the difference in a two, three, or four finger release, and what is best? Well, pretty cool subject. Uh, so, as many of you followers know, I, um, I brought my particular release that I finally had made my way out on the market, um, I guess a few weeks ago, I had that first batch ran, unfortunately sold out in about seven hours, but the amount of people that have hit me up and said how awesome they're shooting now because of that release is just huge. And even in Canada, um, my good buddy Dean struggled the first day, he was battling some issues and, you know, he kind of asked me about my release. He said, you know, do you really like it? And I just said, dude, you need to come shoot this thing. And I literally borrowed him my release and he refused to give it back. He was just like, I can't believe how much better I'm shooting with this thing. And then he took it out on the course and ended up shooting, you know, so much higher than the first round. It was ridiculous. And luckily for me... Uh, I brought a backup release. I kind of, I kind of figured someone was gonna pinch my release off me. So luckily, I had saved a couple releases out of that first batch for myself or a good buddy or two that 
that uh, was going to end up pinching one from me. But So the less fingers you have on a release, the less ability you have to torque that release or manipulate that release into a position that is not as repeatable as the previous position. And I've just felt, and actually today I wrote an article, I forgot what they ended up naming it, but today I wrote an article and in that article I talked about this importance and also I found a picture of me um, shooting in a world championship probably 10 years ago and I had in one of the first two finger trigger releases. It was probably three or four generations prior to any of the ones people have seen me shoot. Um, But I just feel like the less fingers you have on that release, the less mistakes that you make. I also feel like you naturally anchor lighter on the face. I think that you have... You know, sometimes people will pull back and they start really pulling more with their pinky. Then sometimes they start to make a fist on the release, and another time, some another time, people just start to pull through and only apply thumb pressure. I just feel like when you have two fingers wrapped around that release and you bring your thumb to it, I just feel like you can pull those two main fingers along your jawline, which is a perfect alignment. You can pull those two fingers along your jawline, which will continually build pressure on the trigger if you're holding it the right way. And that release just goes off really, really nice. Now, if you're shooting super high weight, um, you know, two fingers can wear you down. If you're, you know, if you're the average guy shooting 70 pounds, um, you know, and you're not really putting in the reps, um, that can slowly wear on you. But, you know, if I look back through time, uh, you know, Jesse used to shoot a two finger release. I know, um, Tony Clem, awesome shooter shot a two finger release when Randy Ulmer shot. So awesome. Also shooting two finger. Uh, when I started my 3d career as a professional, I shot, one of the very first hinge style releases only with two fingers and it was a four finger release but i dropped all the i dropped two of my fingers off i only shot it as two it just for me my grouping and the actual functionability and repeatability and consistency of that release just went so much better when i only had two fingers on the release so uh, and I guess another thing too, with with my particular release, um, just so everyone knows, I have um, talked Carter into making me another batch. I've really upped this this batch. There's going to be approximately 200 only available, and there I should have them within I would think within four to six weeks. Uh, reason being is because I actually prefer to have a very high polish on the casings and those casings um, with the polishing that I'm doing on them and the and the anodizing there's only one place that can do it that way so unfortunately we're at their mercy for lead times but um, 
I know that Sharon has a list right now going. It's it's actually I think thirty percent of those are already gone. Uh, but info at knockonarchery.com is Sharon's email for the knock on store. That's the only place they're going to be available. So if you are interested in one of the releases, which has no name yet, which that will happen by the way, um, when the releases are closer to coming out, I want to go through all those five or 600 name guesses that people made on my Instagram account and I'm going to pick three. I'm going to give those three people a cool prize. And then uh, I'm going to let all of you vote for the name. I'm kind of stuck on a couple names. I There's a couple I really liked. I liked the... Uh, I liked the green thumb. I don't really know why, but I kind of liked it. And uh, one of my buddies, Ryan, came up with two to tango so the tango kind of sticks out as well but i'm gonna go through there were so many good ones the verde diablo uh i don't know there were some funny ones in there but i'm gonna pick my favorite three and then let all of you pick the winner and the whole new batch will have that name engraved on them before they go into production which will be pretty cool but if you're wanting on that list, I would get an email to Sharon, and then uh, you'll pay whenever she she processes it anyway. So moving on to the next question. Hi, John. My name is Bill. Hi, Bill. I wanted to first say thank you for providing great info on the podcast TV show. Um, over the last few years, I've been helping out my local archery pro shop, cleaning up after leagues and other small stuff. Now they've asked me to work at the pro shop on Saturdays so I can learn more about tuning and setting up bows. They've also offered me a spot as a shop shooter. Congratulations, dude. That's awesome. With a new pro form bow. I did not ask for this or expect it. So all I have to all I all you have said about being loyal, humble, and just not having your hand out is the truth. I've made some awesome friends and helped grow the archer community and that is a blessing enough. I just ordered a, Car- a Carter Evolution and it'll be my first release for at least the next year. Well, all that's super awesome. I copy and paste these things as they come. Sometimes it takes me a little while to get to them and I unfortunately I forget about things, but This one stuck out. He's actually got a question I'll get to in a second. But this one stuck out because I'm just a... So many people ask me how I got to where I'm at. It's a continual question. How do you get on TV? How do I become a Hoyt Pro Staffer? How do I get with Under Armour? And, you know, like what this guy said, I wrote an article uh, many years ago about becoming a staff shooter and I just really feel like loyalty and integrity are two things that are getting harder and harder and harder to find in the industry. And, you know, I can tell you, I'm sitting here in this position talking to all of you. And it's taken me 20 years to be in this position. You know, I started out 
working for an archery shop. I worked for months. I was never paid. They didn't want to pay me, but I just wanted to learn. I sat there and I was fletching arrows, building arrows for free. And and actually, I just built three dozen arrows for a good friend of mine for free too. So, I mean, 20 years later, I'm still doing it because that's just part of paying your dues. And I worked at the shop. Eventually, I got offered a position to work for 30 hours a week for four dollars and 10 cents an hour i left a football scholarship to do that and learn how to work on bows a year later i opened my own shop i was working at my own shop and shooting professionally and helping out my the sponsors that were giving me you know a rebate on giving me a better price on things not even getting stuff for free i was always helping them at their shoots and at the booths and helping them tear down and pick up and following through with them and getting them photos that they could use in their marketing and just company after company after company just slowly started to see that loyalty and appreciation and one by one doors started to open and started to open and here I am 20 years later you know I can say that I've been with a company like Easton for 20 years you know I've been with Under Armour nine years. I've been with Hoyt ten years. I was or nine years. I was with Matthews for ten years before that. You know, all this stuff is just based off these basic things. And if you want to get into this industry, and especially if you want to get into this industry and excel, then those are the things that I can't preach enough. Um you know, those are the things that there's too little of right now. Um, but it's the things that are going to keep these industry, this industry going. Uh, to get to part two of Bill's question, um, let's see. He says, one thing I've not heard you talk about is equipment maintenance after hunts or tournaments. Can you go over how to maintain your equipment after rain, uh, dirt and cam strings, broadheads, etc.? So there's quite a few um, things that you hit on in there. But I can tell you that whenever I'm shooting at events or hunting, if the conditions are foul, it is really important that you always you know, try to dry off your equipment when you can. Um you know, when it comes to maintenance, there's a couple things. Leaving your bow in a anywhere where it can get really hot is going to slowly start to change things. You know, if it's baking in a car, you're going to see a lot of your wax sweating out of your string. That string's going to get tighter. It's going to start to elongate. Things are going to start to change. Um, it's just really, really important that you recognize that you know rain, rust dust if when i'm when i especially when i'm hunting in alberta um those roads up there those gravel roads and they've got this like red dust that just i remember one year the red dust was just kind of all over everything and i wasn't paying attention and this was back when they had cable slides I wasn't paying attention to cleaning that dust off my cable slide so then i ended up going and I went back to camp and I started shooting and I ended up shooting for a few hours 
during my downtime just to get some practice in. And all of a sudden, next thing I know, my cable slide started to hop and chatter. And it was because that that dust and that gravel that was actually, you know, microscopic gravel on my cable slide, it just started to wear the smooth finish off my carbon cable rod. And it just, it changed a lot of things because of that friction. You know, the nice thing now about having roller guards as a cable guard is you don't have to worry about that so much. But the main thing is when it comes to strings, after a hunt or after a major shoot, where you, especially where you've dealt with inclement weather, you know, take a wax and coat your string with the wax and then get a piece of leather, wrap that leather around the string and really rub it tight where that leather is almost hot in your fingers. And it's going to melt that wax and embed that wax down into your string. And then it also allows you to melt it into where there's not big globs on the string itself. That really, really helps the string. From there, you know, having a a little compressed air can to like blow out a lot of the dust off things or wiping things off, that's a really good practice. I've just found that when it comes to to bows if you start you know if you start greasing or oiling or lubricating things all that stuff starts to adhere dirt and dust to it and for me it's been my experience that that stuff actually starts to become it starts to promote wear rather than reduce it you know simple things like cleaning out your cams getting the mud and crud off your cams or strings like i said you know waxing your strings you don't want so much wax on the string that it actually weighs the string down and starts to slow the bow down entirely you want to have just enough wax on there to where you can really melt it in with that leather and allow the string to have a smooth wax finish but not to where it's excessive with wax you know a lot of top shooters prefer to have less wax in the string just because it's less likely to to start to change as your temperature heats up or for example as that wax wears out like i said the more wax that's in a string kind of the thicker and heavier that string's going to be um Ulmer used to shoot his strings with virtually no wax in them. They were always real kind of fuzzy and almost looked dry, but he just felt like he said overall, unless it was pouring rain, there was just more consistency there. Now, the downside to not having a lot of wax in your string, um, or adequate wax, I should say, is I feel like when it does rain, if you don't have some wax in your fibers, I think it actually soaks up more water, which then, you know, when you shoot, it's almost like a like a spray can going off all that water shooting out of the string, and that really starts to change things as well. Um, when it comes to broadheads, I'm not a big fan on... I'm not a real big fan on sharpening blades. Um, I'm kind of out. I guess when I look at time, time that I have, it's so much easier for me to just buy a pack of replacement blades. 
undo a screw or two, put brand new blades in and be done with it. Um, if I've got a head that I may have shot once or twice or shot in the dirt, I may use that broadhead to practice in between that last hunt and the hunt that's coming up. But, you know, when it comes to broadhead maintenance, I normally always keep a brand new head in my quiver. Um, I may practice with a used head or even practice with a head that I've replaced the blades, but I don't know. For me, you know, I know there's people out there that, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 bucks for a pack of broadheads is a lot of money, but I just think that's part of the game. I, I just like having brand new ones in my quiver and that's just me. So, uh, but don't over oil, don't over grease, use a compressed air can, use a towel, wipe things down. It's always a good idea to have a little piece of a chamois. You know, I went to Walmart probably 10 years ago and bought a sham wow. And I've got that thing. It was about two foot by two foot. And I've cut it up to where I've got little 12 inch pieces there's a 12-inch piece of that chamois tucked in all of my rain gear and some in my backpacks. And if I'm at a hunt or something and it starts pouring rain, I just pull that chamois out of that little sandwich bag, get it kind of, let it soak up a little bit of that water and just wipe everything down. And if you're at, at a hunt and things are starting to get saturated, pluck your string a little bit and get the water off there before it really soaks in. And I think you'll be good. So that's really what I do. Um, next thing, last question here. Kind of running low on, long on this podcast, but um, you guys have waited a week for me, so I'll give it to you. Uh, last question here actually came in to Sharon. She gave it to me. Uh, says, I'm shooting a 2004 Bowtech Liberty, 27-inch draw, 70 pounds, I was wondering what are some of the most predominant factors as far as being able to hold steady at full draw. It seems to me that my bow wavers a lot when I'm holding it back. Does the strength of your bow arm have a lot to do with it, or is it the stabilizer, or is it the length, or what? So before I answer that question, I'm going to take a sip of this Chardonnay, which is my preferred red wine good for the for the blood for the body um so there's a lot of factors here dude that go into this um obviously if your draw length is incorrect your ability to to hold the bow stable is going to be difficult as well so several of the points that i talked about today can actually all factor into this question having your bow fit to where that string angle your head position your posture is correct can definitely have your ability uh, can have an effect on your ability to hold steady certainly your strength um, to a point I know that especially when it comes to shooting on hills up and downhill shots um, if you're not overall physically um, capable, you really start to lose your ability to hold steady once your bow hand gets above or below that shoulder. A lot of people don't 
spend enough time practicing on slight inclines or slight declines. And it just helps create more stability and more strength in those stabilizer muscles that are within that shoulder socket when you're shooting on positions where your bow hand is above or below your shoulder. You know, there's so many different elements to being able to hold steady that people often overlook. And, you know, what's really cool about archery nowadays is that there's so much emphasis on becoming a year-round fitness person to become a better hunter or a better archer. I've always, I mean, like I said, I started... I started bow hunting over 30 years ago. I started shooting professionally almost 20 years ago. And I've always given credit to my ability as an athlete and as, and my also, I've given credit to the fact that I've felt like I've been in better shape than a lot of the people that I competed against at the time. Now, there were times where I wasn't in the shape that I would have wanted to be in, and honestly, those were probably the worst years that I've had as a competitor. When I've been in better physical shape, the bottom line is I shoot better. I shoot I can shoot longer, I can hold steadier, and I feel like my confidence is higher because I'm seeing a steadier sight picture and I'm also not dealing with an accelerated heart rate um, going to and from targets you know really moving around going from here there climbing a hill going from one target to the next that stuff is all gravy Uh, for me I feel like I really excelled as a field archer because I could shoot on steep slopes and really not change how my bow held that much and a lot of that was because of my shoulder and front arm chest strength tricep strength and also focusing you know a lot of people a lot of people neglect their back strength overall you know it seems like you know right now just this morning at the gym uh i kind of I'm I'm a train alone person. I like training by myself. I like kind of getting in my zone. I like zoning out. I like training alone. Um, I actually don't particularly like going to a public gym just because there's a lot of people in there that are just either doing it the wrong way that are a distraction or there's people there that just do the exact same thing every day and they're not really focusing on overall fitness they're you know i look at people that every time i see them they're doing bench and they're doing curls it's like every time that's all they do and i think one of the most neglected things especially for archers is the strength in your back um you know i know that your back has to be proportional to your front. If you're always bench pressing, but you're never building your back, one, you start to round yourself forward because those chest muscles start to pull yourself around. 
But also when you look at things like uphill shots or downhill shots that put you out of posture, having that back strength is so critical to being able to pull through those shots with more force. Um, I just feel like people want to, a lot of people want to lift for the benefits of how they look more so than the actual benefits of how it can be utilized either in their sport or, you know, as an everyday, something that you could benefit from every day. You know, it's critical that if you get into fitness, you spend equal amount of time on equal parts or um, areas of your body. You know, don't just work the front of your body, meaning biceps and chest, um, or, you know, or doing squats, you know, because then you totally neglect the rear portion of your body and the rear portion of your body is, you know, especially with a sport of archery, it's pretty unique because in archery, when you're at full draw from your center line forward, utilizes one set of muscles in your body but from the center line back it's the exact opposite so when you look at yourself at full draw your your front chest muscle your shoulder and your front tricep and then your lower lat muscle will be utilized but then when you're looking at the rear portion your bicep, your deltoid, and your rhomboid, the center part of your back, is what's going to be used. And it's funny because um, three-time Mr. Olympia Frank Zane, when Frank and I trained together, he, well, he told me, you know, he's he's always been referred to as a bodybuilder with arguably the best symmetry, meaning uh, you know, the body is equal on all sides. However, he, he always said that he really felt like, and he really noticed it on me that he actually wasn't, didn't have perfect symmetry, but he learned to pose in a way that allowed his body to look symmetrical or more symmetrical. But he even told me, he said, you know, when I shot archery all the time, my front tricep and my front chest muscle was always bigger than the opposite side. And he said, and, you know, the peak of my bicep on my pulling arm and my lat uh, or on my back on my pulling arm, he said, was always, in my opinion, had more detail in it. And he said it was because of when I would sit there and shoot hundreds of arrows shooting archery and I feel like I'm the same my left tricep my left chest is certainly bigger it's from you know 30 years of pushing a bow naturally on the front pulling with the rear so it's important that if you are looking to to build strength to make sure that you're covering all aspects lift with the front and lift with the back portions of the body do chest do biceps, uh, but also don't neglect your back 
and your core and your triceps because all of that stuff is 100% relative. Now from there, the the next subject that I want to talk about in relation to holding steady is actually a subject that me and my good buddy Dave Stepp were having on our phone on the phone the other day we were talking about um dave was trying a new bow and he said that he's like for some reason he goes as soon as i put this bow together it held so good he said it was just amazing at how good it felt and he said i actually was wondering he said it felt to me because he he really hadn't focused on building a bow suitable for tournament archery um, and he said, I, I kind of started wondering why the heck this bow just felt so comfortably naturally. And he said, I actually pulled it back. And when I looked at the peak weight and the holding weight, he's like, it was exactly the same as the bow that I shot the year that I won a hundred thousand bucks. And I told him, I said, it's funny you say that because this year, I, I pulled that hyper edge out of the box. I literally set it up without doing a single thing to it. And instantly, I was just shooting some of the best indoor rounds I've ever shot. And this bow felt a lot like a bow that I had shot years ago that I was super comfortable with. And I actually just out of curiosity wanted to check the pulling weight and the holding weight. And I noticed the exact same connection. My pulling weight and my holding weight was identical to the bow that I had shot the year that I had shot my best on the U.S. team and when I held my highest world ranking. And I just really feel like there's much more importance on let off and holding weight of how your cam holds at full draw compared to your overall size and what naturally fits you really well. Now, some people just naturally want to slow down their movement by adding more and more and more weight to their bow. But I can tell you that changing your holding weight on your bow can also have a huge impact of how steady that bow feels. Some people like a lot more. I mean, I look back in time, I think of someone like Ken Likens or Dan McCarthy, they shot incredible, incredibly high holding weight compared to me. But then I look at someone like myself or Step that always liked a holding weight that was maybe somewhere around 15 or 16 pounds. But then I look at someone like, say, Colin Booth, who was an unbelievable shooter, and he was literally shooting 80% let off cams, shooting a 69-pound bow. So, I mean, he's he's only holding 20% of, of 69 pounds. So, I mean, you're looking at a guy that's holding 13 and a half to 14 pounds at full draw. So, you know, you take one guy that is a world champion that's holding rock steady and shooting perfect at 14 pounds versus another person that's a world championship and holding steady at 16 pounds and another person that's doing the same thing holding 21 pounds. 
everyone is going to have that area that feels best for them. And certainly size and strength have a lot to factor in with that. You can change that by either changing the let-off modules on your cams. Um, you can change it by increasing or decreasing the overall diameter of your cables. The thicker you make your cables, the higher your holding weight will go, the lower your let-off will be. The thinner your cables, the more let-off you'll gain. Um, for example, some people shoot like a spiral cam the best they love it they love the feel they love how it shoots i've never been able to shoot that kind of cam very good unless i shoot it with a smaller diameter cable that allows me to have a slightly larger valley or a slightly lower holding weight than what that cam does at a stock position you know some people don't shoot say a normal cam like a gtx cam properly because they feel like that holding weight is not enough. Whereas for me, I love how that feels. Um, a good buddy of mine, Randy, had this, him and I had this conversation. He wanted to order a new bow, and he said, I don't know if I should get a GTX cam or a Spiral X cam. I said, well, here's what I think you should order. He said, well, I am think I'm going to order the other. He ordered the other, and then next thing I know, three weeks later, he's like, I've been fighting this for a while. I think I'm going to try those other cams. He ended up having to invest in the other cams, and then now he ends up sending me a text saying, I should have listened to you. I love these way better. So all that stuff affects how your bow is going to hold, how it's going to shoot, and, man, I guess it is what it is. Good luck to all of you going to the ASA shoot. Good luck to everyone who's coming out to the shoot that I'll be at in Canada. Um, if you're going to be there, any donations that you can provide to help uh, fund the Make-A-Wish Foundation is certainly going to be appreciated. Special thanks. Um, I've had a few truck drivers see my knock-on truck or Jeep go down the road and kind of give me a double honk. I'm always thinking of you truck drivers don't know how you do it. I would... Um, I'd be asleep, certainly, but uh, hey, I love you guys. You uh, make sure that the UPS man is always bringing me my targets and my bows and my arrows and all that good stuff to the house. Thank you all so much, and have a good weekend, or depending on the day of the week you're listening to this, whatever else. Peace out. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com